Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Joe Mulhall, who is a senior researcher with Hope Not Hate. And as the author of Drums in the Distance, Journeys into the Global Far Right. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Now, Joe, the effect that this book had was to seriously stress me out. Uh, what was the effect you were hoping to have by writing the book? <laughs> it stressed me out writing it. So, But uh, no, I don't think the plan was to, to stress out the reader. I think the plan was to uh, kind of, I guess, warn the reader a little bit, maybe slightly scare the reader, but maybe try and add a bit of hope at the end as well. But maybe I didn't succeed in the last bit. I don't know. Oh, no, that was all fine. It was just like when you were going on far-right radio shows and they're like, oh, we've just looked up your name. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't like this bit. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, there, there was some moment. I mean, uh, the book kind of obviously tells the story of the rise of the global far-right, which is scary in and of itself. But it also, as you say, kind of tells a lot of kind of quite personal stories about work I've done for Hope Not Hate at various undercover events over the last decade or so. And um it had the same effect on my mum, if that helps. She didn't know any of it until she read it, and uh, she was most unhappy. Jay, it is a, an exploration of the global right, but you begin uh, close to home with the BNP and one of the early campaigns that Hope Not Hate mounted against it. Can you describe, I guess, your introduction to monitoring the far right and how you came to go on this journey? Yeah, sure. So so the book kind of starts, as you say, back in 2009, 2010. And at the time in in the UK, we had a party called the British National Party, which which was the most electorally successful far-right party in, well, in British history, really. At the time, they had, uh, you know, I mean, by European standards, very few. They only had kind of 60-odd councillors. But in terms of the UK, because of our electoral system, that was the most that we'd ever had. And the party, you know, was was kind of tipping near a million votes. And so it was extraordinarily successful for considering how extreme they were. And at the time, I was kind of looking around, I'd finished university, I was looking around, I was, you know, went to do some campaigning. And, and there was this organisation called Hope Not Hate. And, and at the time, I felt they were doing the kind of most interesting, most dynamic campaigning. And, and the BNP were making real electoral headway in certain communities, especially economically deprived communities, you know, post-industrial places where, you know, globalisation had hit them really hard. And Hope Not Hate was going into those towns, places like Dagenham in East London or uh, Burnley up in the northwest or Stoke in the Midlands. And they were actually going back into communities and and spending long periods of time there knocking on doors, working with the communities and attempting to 
undermine the BNP's vote. And the big battleground at that election, it was a general election in 2010, was Dagenham, which was this old Ford factory had been there that used to have, you know, employ 60,000 people. And it had dropped down to just a handful. And the BNP, that had been their strong place. And it looked actually like they were going to take control of the council. Electorally, you know, the polling looked like they already had 12 councillors, but it looked like they might win the whole council, which would have just been a massive disaster. So I, I started going out and campaigning bit by bit day in day out and then kind of it was one of those things where it was it was hard not to get sucked into it and and it became it felt this like this quite important moment and every anti-fascist in the country in the UK was was engaged and these campaign days were enormous and we won and the BNP lost all of its council instead of winning and and it was this kind of really exciting moment in the history of British anti-fascism really you know it was one of the big victories that our movements had and over the years that followed the British National Party subsequently declined and split and splintered to the point now where it, it barely exists. In Well, it's kind of got its name, but there's no one left, really. So that was kind of my entry to it, which was, in one sense, brilliant because it was exciting. Uh, in one sense, it was, it was difficult in that it was, you know, it's hard to replicate that success ever since. <laughs> I noticed uh, Nick Griffin was recently on an Australian podcast with a couple of local neo-Nazis uh, whose, I guess you could charitably say, their time in the sun has also passed. It seems like a bit of a step down from European Parliament. What was it that led to the decline of the BNP? Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there were numerous forces. I mean, one was people were so outraged, right, that how successful they'd become. You know, as you say, like winning seats in the European Parliament, winning councillors up and down the country. You know, he was start because of the point where they were electorally, they were on television. They were getting adverts for the, during the elections. They were put on big TV shows. And I think a huge amount of it was the communities which they'd preyed upon which is what they've been doing for years. They've been going to economically deprived communities and lying to them and preying on their fears and their concerns and, and using that to win. The anti-fascist movement rallied, you know, you, you had the biggest events that we'd seen in decades in terms of anti-fascism, hundreds of people out in communities every weekend. Um, you had the local communities basically turning around and saying, actually, we're, we're not going to have this anymore. And they stood up. And even the mainstream political parties saw the threat. You know, they saw it late, but they realized there was a threat and they stood up. And campaign, and basically, it was kind of a wholesale rejection. But it, but it, at its roots, it was the communities in which the BNP had been focusing, you know, stood up and said, "No, we're not having this." And and bit by bit, once the, they lost in Dagenham, they then lost in Stoke, they then lost in Burnley, and it was this kind of exciting couple of year period where hope not hate. We were just going around the country wherever there was an election, and and we were watching the BNP lose. There, we would work with the local community. The local community would stand up. And of course, once that happened and the electoral defeats started rolling in, the party began to split. People began to leave. The kind of the infighting that always happens in far right parties reemerged, and you know Nick Griffin couldn't control it. Uh, and of course, eventually he then he he then departs. So as I say now, as you say, he's he's on that podcast you mentioned. He's a shadow of informer self. He's gone from this figure that was kind of all over British television and often in the newspapers to a complete nobody nowadays. So it's, it's quite a nice feeling, really, for, for many of the British anti-fascist movement. Did you ever get a chance to check out his uh, cooking show, Joe? <laughs> I did, yeah. How you can how you can save money by cooking. Um, I mean, the irony was, of course, is that he was on quite good money at the time. He was saying, I can help you understand what it's like to, to live frugally. But he was he was raking the cash in at the time. I mean, he was always a strange character. He was He was, in some senses... For the far right, more impressive than most, he was intelligent certainly, and he could could be articulate. And he was good at 
lying to people. But he was also this weird character that, as you say, that would kind of do these strange cooking shows. And and I think a lot of the far right, as soon as he became electorally unsuccessful, were quite relieved to get rid of him, to be honest. Well, the BNP might have, might have left the European Parliament, but the UK has left the EU, and that's partly due to the efforts of other parties on the right, including UKIP. I suppose I hope hate has... Um, spent some time examining UKIP and the EDL as well. What was your understanding of those groups and how did uh, Hope Not Hate respond to them? So, uh, as you said, when the BNP, uh, you know, post-2010-11, I mean, around that same sort of time, you had the rise of the English Defence League, as you said, which in some senses didn't come out of that traditional history of the British far right. You know, the BNP, you could trace right back to the 1920s in terms of its successor parties and and some of the activists were in it had joined the far right in the 1950s with Oswald Mosley, you know, the British fascist from the pre-war period. So it was kind of like a direct lineage, this unbroken thread. But the English Defence League emerged 2009-ish. And uh, although kind of the leader, Stephen Lennon or Tommy Robinson, had had a brief period in the BNP, it was this kind of new force in British far right politics. It was solely focused on Islam at the time, pretty much. It was like an anti-Muslim street movement. It was far more confrontational. It was far more about the streets. And then at the same time, of course, you had the the UKIP, which had been around for a long time, but really starts to grow extraordinarily fast as the BNP declines. And with that one, it was a bit more complex for Hope Not Hate. You know, we were a traditional anti-fascist organization. There was no doubt, I think, in some senses, UKIP was far right. It was racist. It was xenophobic. But it wasn't explicitly fascist in many ways. And there was a big debate. I mean, in hindsight, it seems it seems a bit mad, but there was a big debate in the anti-fascist movement here about, is this our job? You know, do we expand out beyond fascism to look at UKIP as well? And, and for Hope Not Hate, it became quite an easy answer in terms of they were pushing such divisive, xenophobic, well, you know, often race, explicitly racist politics and, and obviously preying on the same communities the BNP had. And so we kind of changed tack and, and headed full force for them really over the following years. And, you know, a, a big part of us was trying to expose just how extreme they really were. The issue, of course, was how successful and how large they were. You know, they were, you know, I think one of the elections, they had over 4 million votes in the UK. And, and while they never won a seat in the British Parliament, they were fundamentally important for, you know, what became Brexit. Nigel Farage, you know, was became a, an enormous figure in British politics. He was on television every single day. He was, you know, he was not just in the UK, he was all over the world. People were, were covering this. And while UKIP again have, have obviously subsequently collapsed, partly because they're not needed anymore post-Brexit, uh, Nigel Farage, you know, remains quite an important figure in the UK. And unfortunately, you know, there was, Brexit was never just a far-right deal, I should say. You know, there was lots of people on the left that wanted Brexit, felt that the European Union was undemocratic and and those sort of, and, and pro-business. But it was also, by the end of that election, it was so toxic. You know, uh, it would become, it was about immigration. There was billboards all over the country with, you know, hordes of Turkish people on the front of them saying they're coming for you and all this really vile, racist, xenophobic politics. And unfortunately, it kind of was legitimized by that electoral victory in the end. Brexit was a, a campaign that was marked by, amongst other things, the use of uh, micro-targeting and, you know, highly psychological advertising, uh, which is something we also saw in the campaign to originally elect Donald Trump. Could you speak a little bit about some of the figures behind the scenes who are working across these far-right campaigns? Yeah, sure. So you're absolutely right. I mean, Brexit, there was so much money involved. And there was this company called Cambridge Analytica, which which many people might have heard of, some people might have not. And and basically, some people have blamed Cambridge Analytica essentially for the for the 
Brexit campaign being successful. And it was a combination of things. I mean, part of it was the campaign to remain completely failed to offer a genuinely exciting kind of legitimate option for the future. But there was also these data scandals about misuse of data, about the, and you know, in some senses, you say a lot of it had been taken from the Trump campaign, these highly targeted campaign advertising stuff, huge amount of work on social media. And now, you know, the personal data of millions of Facebook users was acquired uh, in all sorts of ways that in hindsight seems to have been unethical, perhaps, you know, obviously broke the terms of service of of Facebook itself. But also, uh, you know, you take this kind of slightly dodgy data work that was hugely highly targeted, throw in vast amounts of money and lobbying money, and then all of these kind of misinformation and disinformation campaigns, plus this toxic overtones that were coming from people like Farage and and UKIP with the kind of xenophobic push. And then obviously just lies from the mainstream as well. You know, we're all going to get millions of pounds pumped into the National Health Service if we, if we can leave the European Union, which of course subsequently hasn't happened. It became this really toxic mix that managed to push it across the line just in the end. Well, speaking of mainstream actors, I understand that Farage is headed to Australia later this year to address CPAC. And understand also that the major speaker is a former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. So the I guess that's an interesting conjunction of Farage is a major figure in some ways, but not a Prime Minister. But yeah, as you say, you have this kind of ideology that's being propagated through both seemingly marginal actors and very mainstream uh, sources. Can you talk a little bit about how, through your ex- explorations of the far right, you've come to understand the relationship between the far right and the mainstream right? Yeah, I think there's there's two things that happen, right? What one is mainstreaming and one is normalization. And essentially, I think mainstreaming is when individuals on the far right enter the mainstream. You know, when we see that when we see far right figures that get mainstream press attention, that get picked up by mainstream broadcasters or they get brought in as advisors. And that's really really worrying, but it's it's something in one sense that we can try and use more traditional tactics, you know, to try and build up that cordon sanitaire to say why these individuals shouldn't be allowed into the into the mainstream. And then you've got normalization, which I think is much more pernicious, which is essentially the ideas and the rhetoric of the far right creeping into the mainstream and where it becomes espoused by more mainstream figures. And once that happens, it's extraordinarily hard to kick it back out of the mainstream. And I think, you know, Trump is a great example of that, as you mentioned. You know, Trump won and then he lost. But despite the fact that he's lost, the politics of Trumpism has radicalized the Republican Party. The normalization of some of the stuff that he did, some of his political positions, it makes it when people see these things coming out from either prime ministers or or presidents, uh, no, rather than coming from kind of fringe kind of far right extremists, as it were, it becomes really, really hard to turn around and say why these ideas should be ostracized and why they should be no platformed or why they should be kicked out. Because people turn around and say, well, these are coming from mainstream people. They must be mainstream ideas. And that becomes really, really hard. We saw that with Trump. We saw that obviously a lot with Brexit, with the rhetoric around immigration. Once again, it kicked it into the mainstream. But we're seeing it all over the place, right? We're seeing it in India with Modi. We're obviously seeing it with Bolsonaro in Brazil. And we've seen it across the continent of Europe as well, where these ideas that traditionally would have been confined to the, uh, the margins of politics are now being espoused by the mainstream. And, and in the UK, the best example is this horrendous policy that the Conservative government have done, where we now kind of are starting to ship asylum seekers to Rwanda to, to claim their asylum there rather than allowing them to claim asylum in the UK. These are ideas that I think when I started in anti-fascism back in 2009, the BNP would have felt nervous about espousing an idea that we should ship 
asylum seekers to Rwanda. They would have felt that that would have just been seen as too extreme. And now that's a policy that's passed through Britain and, and, and is kind of being enacted by a conservative government. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Joe Mulhall about the global far right. Joe, throughout the book, you go into some of your exploits infiltrating various far right organisations around the world, which didn't involve just going to meetings and sitting in the back of the room and taking notes. Uh, in some cases, you became quite involved in it, you know, things like going along with board patrols and running around the desert with a gun. Could you tell us, how do you prepare for something like that? I mean, in hindsight, in some sense, I wish I'd prepared more. I hope not hate we do a range of, of work, obviously. We do kind of public-facing research, open source, but we also do infiltration, and we think it's important to both infiltrate and, and recruit sources because the far-right lie, right, as, as, you, as we all know, right? And what they say to the public often is what they say, is not what they say when they're sat in the pub or they're sat in the desert, as you say, with the border keepers of Alabama. In the run-up to those things, you know, we obviously put in a huge amount of preparatory work. We have to build up huge social media backgrounds that look legitimate. We have to spend a huge amount of time making sure that our stories are as, as kind of concrete as possible because, as you say, it's one thing to sit in a room at the back and make sure your story is kind of strong enough that you can have a quick conversation with someone. But some of these infiltrations were, were kind of long-term, as you say, like with the Alabama lot, I stayed at their homes. Uh, I went out to the desert with them for, for days on end. And in those cases, obviously, you've kind of got to build a story that's going to last over days or sometimes weeks of conversation. Uh, and we've put a, you know, a huge amount of work to it. We don't normally go into a huge amount of details publicly about what we do there, but there is a, like a, a long backstory that we go into and, and it's a huge amount of preparatory work to try and make sure that you know it's as safe as possible really you also describe in the book talking about hanging out with the, the border keepers uh becoming you know friendly with them H- how do you handle becoming friends with someone who you know is the enemy essentially yeah it's the hardest bit of it to be honest right i mean because i think understandably as anti-fascists we look at these people as monsters and and, and they are our enemy right and we're and we're right to think of them as our enemy but they're also human beings, right? And and I think actually it's the biggest learning that I certainly that I you know got over the years was it was really quite comforting to think of them as as not like us, as completely separate, not like normal people. You know, they're these kind of abstract evil, this kind of weird monsters, these reptilian people. And actually, when you spend a huge amount of time with them, you start to realise that actually they are normal people. And actually, in many ways, that's much more scary because normal people doing awful things. And we know this, of course, through history, right? You know, if we think even back to the Third Reich and we go back to the Second World War, millions upon millions of people across the continent of Europe, you know, uh, fell for Nazism. So it wasn't this kind of weird abstract evil. It was something that, you know, the fascism in many ways is normal people believing and doing awful things. And it becomes hard when you end up with these slightly difficult relationships where you spend time with them. And when you're not talking about politics, you know, when you're spending a long period of time, you're talking about their families, you're talking about their jobs, their hobbies, and you connect on a human level. And you realize that they are normal people. But it's you always have to, of course, remember why you're doing it. And and, and sometimes there are these bolts out of the blue, which remind you and I always go back to this story when I'd been in the desert in, in kind of New Mexico with these with this militia group. And we drove to get some fuel and petrol. As we got there, we kind of, I'm buying some sweets and, uh, you know, I like American sweets and I'm looking through and the guy that I'd been with for days, really lovely cat guy, out of the blue leans over the sweets and just says, oh, by the way, you know, when when the race war starts, I've got a list of mosques that I'm going to take out. And it was just this real stark reminder out of the blue 
why we do you know why we do this work really you know because i'd spent and i'd spent i spent time at his house after that and he was so kind and loving and friendly but there was just you know fascism is when these normal people or ostensibly normal people believe these horrendous things and then sometimes of course act on these horrific things and i think that's the biggest lesson from any of this sort of work and it's not just me any of my colleagues patrick hermanson who who went undercover in the alt-right in both the uk and america for a year the same thing you build relationships with people where in some senses you see past their politics and you see them as humans. And I think that's actually quite useful, even though quite difficult. Joe, when you were uh, taking part in the Border Patrol, you also write that it seemed to be the case that the militia and the US Border Patrol, the government agency, seemed to have quite good relations and perhaps work in cooperation in patrolling the border. Is that an outcome of uh, Trump's ascendancy? And how do you understand the relationship between uh, the militia movement in the United States and the US government and its various agencies? Yeah, I mean, that was possibly the scariest bit of it, actually. So, you know, we're out in the middle of the desert and we're the, kind of with these gun-toting guys from Alabama all kind of dressed up in heavily armoured gear with semi-automatic rifles and shotguns. And the Border Patrol turn up, because obviously we were right on the Mexican border, Border Patrol turn up and I started to get quite nervous thinking, you know, God, they're going to come and arrest us. You know, how am I going to explain this one? And they didn't. They kind of all shook hands, said hello, and ostensibly almost kind of worked out where we were going to be that week so that they weren't covering the same space. There was this kind of strange collaboration, which was terrifying, right? Because the idea that the, the, the you know, the establishment or the state would collaborate with what were explicitly far-right extremists was a really, really worrying sign. And of course, I shouldn't have been surprised in sense in, in America. We know there's been some research once again recently, actually, the ADL put out a report about various militia groups, about how many people within it were kind of law enforcement or, or linked into the armed forces. We've seen it time and time again. And not just in America, we've seen it in Germany with kind of, you know, whole sections of the, you know, the military in America being in, in Germany, sorry, being caught out for being far right sympathetic. We've seen members of the armed forces in the UK and Canada being linked into kind of far-right extremist groups. So in one sense, we shouldn't be too surprised about it, but it is extraordinarily scary. And I think in America, the scale of it uh, certainly seems to be worrying. I mean, most of the uh, big section of the people that that were in the border keepers of Alabama were either ex-military or or ex-police. And as I say, this kind of collaboration, the evidence has been kind of coming out time and time again through numerous reports in America that have kind of proved that connectivity, which is really, really scary, because once you've got this kind of these ideas inculcated within kind of law enforcement, they're extraordinarily hard to get out. And obviously, we see how that plays out on the streets as well. One of the most satisfying parts of the book, Joe, is uh, your recounting of the systematic dismantling of Generation Identity UK. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about who the identitarians are and uh, what Hope Not Hate did to them? Yeah, I mean, this was great. This uh, <laughs> that was a fun one. I mean, it was um, the, the identitarian movement itself traces its roots back to the Nouvelle Droite in the late sixties. But Generation Identity emerged as this youth movement, identitarian youth movement, in the, in two thousands and two thousand twelve in France, and then spread across Europe. And their big their big kind of policy ideas was about remigration. Essentially, they were there was like a reconstitution of traditional fascist ideas to what instead of you know instead of talking about repatriation and they called, talked about remigration. And they talked about ethno-pluralism, which was essentially a kind of modern way for saying separate but equal. And this movement spread around Europe, and it was kind of very tech-savvy. It got lots of headlines. They would do big demonstrations, and they would do big stunts, basically. And then they decided to do this big boat uh, trip where they bought a boat, raised money from around the world, and, and 
got a boat into the Mediterranean during the migrant crisis. And it was this horrific mission where they were trying to stop NGO boats and, you know, which were rescuing kind of people in the Mediterranean. And off the back of that, they got really big international coverage and they started to launch in the UK. And we were really concerned at Hope Not Hate because most of the the British far right were, were elderly or certainly aging. Whereas this was starting to attract in kids in their 20s, you know, even in their teenagers. And we didn't like the idea that all of a sudden there was a far right movement emerging in the UK that was attracting in both young people, but also ostensibly, I hate to use the word normal, but, uh, you know, people, you know, one of the guys that ran it in the UK worked at a bank in the city of London. They were attracting in kind of young people that were in some sense were aspirational and we, and we didn't like that at all, really. So we decided to get on it early doors, right? And we basically flooded the movement straight from the off with infiltrators as soon as we could to the point where Martin Selner, who was the kind of international leader of Generation Identity, when he came to the UK to launch it, we had people inside the meeting, in the planning meeting, where we were secretly recording that. There was a documentary that came out on British television, kind of exposing him, talking about anti-Semitism, all these things that they'd promised they never did talk about. And over that next two years, basically, we had people inside every meeting. And it was uh, everything they did we knew about. And to the point where we were starting to try and orchestrate and move the movement in the direction we wanted, and then we would just sporadically kind of expose them. We would publish exposés either through documentaries or at Hope Not Hate through our website or through major newspapers in the UK. And it meant that every time they tried to relaunch and say, you know, we're much more moderate than the traditional far right, we would expose them with the reality of their extremeness. And it just started to get over a time where basically internally they started to split. Internally they were constantly talking. I actually met someone who used to be in Generation Identity recently. Uh, we went for a pint. And he was talking about how, you know, how much time they had to spend internally discussing infiltrators and, and you know, looking behind their back. And and it caused all of this internal tension. And, and every time we'd do an expose, another group of people would leave. The leader would leave again. And over kind of a two-year period, they eventually just collapsed. You know, people stopped joining uh, to the point where eventually uh, the movement kind of uh, dissipated in the UK. And now Generation Identity doesn't exist in the UK at all, really. There's a tiny little group of maybe three activists that still do something called Identity England, but over that period, and it was a really successful campaign, and it was, uh, and it was, it was exciting, and it also felt personal because we were we were all in our twenties, and as I say, a lot of the British far right was much older, whereas this these guys were our age, so it felt a bit more personal, really, and um, and it was just a nice example of how modern anti fascism can work. It wasn't, it was you know included all those traditional elements, community work, etc., but it was also had that infiltration element that Hope Not Hate did. It had national campaigns, but it was also international. We were working with anti-fascists all over Europe that were passing it. You know, we were sharing information on a daily basis. We were working with people on the ground all over Europe. And uh, and it was a really successful one. It was a great example of, of what anti-fascism can do, you know, in the modern age. And um, and as I say, they don't really exist anymore, which is which is a nice feeling. They exist in Europe, of course, but but not in the UK. Joe, how do you situate identitarianism in terms of the alt-right or the alternative right? I mean, it depends how one defines the alt-right. I mean, I would define the alt-right in some senses as, you know, the movement that emerged in from about you know, 2013 onwards. And it was the American traditional far-right, so right of the Republican Party, merging with actually a lot of these European identitarian ideas. And then the, the third element of this was what we, we called at Hope Not Hate antagonistic online communities, which was essentially the way they did business online. And what you had is you had these traditional American movement, far-right movements, adopting what the European identitarian movement called metapolitics, you know, the, traditionally this Gramscian idea, but this idea that it's about culture, 
not about politics, that politics is downstream of culture. You need to wrestle control of the culture. And once you control that, politics will follow. And it's why the identitarian movement um, didn't stand, doesn't stand in elections, right? They have book clubs. They publish books. They have public events. They have speaking events. They have social events. They do banner drops. They do stunts that they think will affect society and culture. They don't actually stand in elections. And and the American far right started to look at this, of course, right? And I remember being undercover at a, an event of the MPI in America, which was Richard Spencer, who became in some senses the figurehead of the alt-right, but before the alt-right was called the alt-right. And, you know, European identitarian philosophers uh, like de Benoit went over to speak. Uh, and you could see this kind of merging of these European ideas, which had been on the European far right since the late 60s, being kind of inculcated into the American far right. So you had this American movement with these European far right philosophical ideas merging and then throw in the Internet and the way that kind of the troll culture that was emergent at the time and coming out of things like 4chan. And it was this little kind of mixture, this conglomerate. And when these three things merged, you essentially had the alt-right. So I do think the European identitarian movement, certainly in terms of its philosophical roots and also the way it did business in terms of this metapolitical approach, was really fundamental for the growth of what became the alt-right internationally and certainly in America. Jay, you also look at the situation in Brazil and in India, the emergence of uh, various forms of uh, far-right and fascist politics that aren't necessarily predicated on white supremacy, but perhaps some other forms, uh, including, in the case of India, um, Hindu nationalism. And I noticed just uh, during the course of the week, that there was a confrontation between, I think, BJP activists and Muslims in the city of Leicester. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about your explorations of Hindu nationalism and do you think that this is a sign that those forms are beginning to organise and have effect on British politics? Yeah, I mean, so so when I was looking at doing this book, I wanted it to be global in, in its scope because I felt like there was, in some senses, this movement, this direction of travel in, in global politics. And, you know, back in 2017, you had Trump in the White House, you had Bolsonaro in Brazil, and you had Modi in India. You know, these three kind of vast global powers, all in different, of course, with their own histories and, and different routes to it, but all of which were kind of espousing really radical or far-right politics. And, and I went and spent some time in India during these horrific riots that were happening against Muslim communities. And we knew that Hindu, Hindu nationalism, the RSS and the BJP was extraordinarily dangerous and, and was essentially doing the same thing that we were seeing with Trump in America, but against Mexicans or Bolsonaro in Brazil was doing against indigenous populations. In, in, in India, it was about this kind of anti-Muslim hatred that he was whipping up to, in some senses, almost like near genocidal scale. And we were seeing people being killed on the streets. And, and, it, and I felt like if you were going to have a book that really talked in, in a global scale about what we're seeing, about, in sense, kind of dem democracy and social democracy and liberal democracies, the pillars of it wobbling around the world, it made sense to cover India as well. And, and not just because, of course, there was also this collaboration. You know, we saw Trump, you know, supporting Bolsonaro. We've seen Trump and Modi kind of, inter you know, interconnecting. And of course, because we have these huge diasporas around the world, these things then play out around the world as well. And as you say, we've just had in Leicester, this city in the Midlands of the United Kingdom, where we've seen kind of disturbances over the weekend between Muslim communities and the Hindu community. You know, and, and, and interesting, as you say, it's just come out this morning that 18 of the people arrested, so roughly half of the people that, that were in between this Hindu and Muslim violence, 
were actually born outside the United Kingdom and were in some sense bringing some of this politics in. And, and it started with a cricket match that, that, and it followed on from there. But we are seeing this kind of Hindu nationalism inculcate within British communities as well. We're seeing, we've seen the BJP focus itself in some senses on, on British, uh, British Hindu communities as well. So these diaspora communities, these things play out in as well, which of course is really, really concerning. But I think it's a really important point. This is why we have to take a global approach to these questions. Right, we can't. We we still have to look at our street, and we still have to look at our own communities, and our own towns, and our own cities, and our own countries. But we are living in an age now where ideas, especially pernicious ideas, transport across global communities instantaneously. You know, you can have a kid sat in London consuming white nationalist or white supremacist content that was made in Melbourne, and then making another video that they're then being watched by someone in Germany or America. And the same, of course, can happen with Hindu nationalism or Islamist extremism. These ideas can cross borders instantaneously, and, and we have to think globally. And I think Leicester's just another example about this now, uh, where, where these forces that are happening internationally can, can also happen hyper-locally. Uh, and it's really, really concerning. You know, and we've got, you mentioned Bolsonaro, we've got really concerning and troubling stuff coming up in Brazil. We've got their elections coming up in a week and a half or so. And, you know, a huge amount of people are wondering whether or not Bolsonaro is going to walk away if he loses, which it looks like he will you know, whether or not we're going to see a similar sort of thing that we saw with Trump in America. So I think it was really important to include those those three massive global powers, all of which kind of, as I say at the beginning of the book, when I started in, in 2009-10, you know, we were talking about councillors in East London. Uh, none of us would have ever thought that kind of a decade later, we would have been talking about these three global powers at the very top of world power with, you know, three three of the biggest populous countries in the world all of which were under essentially far-right governments. The speed with which that change happened was pretty terrifying. Speaking of the spreading of pernicious ideas, perhaps on a slightly smaller scale than a Modi or a Bolsonaro, but I hope not hate, recently had some success in the deplatforming of Andrew Tate. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about who Andrew Tate is, why he seemingly took over the internet, and why it was important to deplatform him? Yeah, so so Andrew Tate is this horrific character, right? He's um he was born in Chicago but grew up in Luton, right? Which is which ironically Luton is just outside London. It's where Tommy Robinson also grew up. Uh, who was the the founder of the English Defence League? They were very friendly, and it, we'd been looking at him for a number of years because you mentioned CPAC earlier. He went over to CPAC in America and and hung around with Farage and a guy called Paul Joseph Watson and. Mike Posobiec and uh, Mike Cernovich and a, and a few, you know, various far right figures. So he'd been on our radar for a while, but at the beginning of this year, he just exploded on social media, and basically it was through social media manipulation. He set up this thing called Huster's University. I mean, I should mention Andrew Tate appears to be extraordinarily wealthy. Um, he, he runs casinos. He had a webcam business, and he was make, and he set up this Huster University, which was basically this kind of hustle thing where, you know, if you're a young man, I'll teach you how to become rich and famous. And one of the things he encouraged people to do was to take his long-form content on YouTube where he would do these interviews on YouTube, cut it up and stick it on TikTok to the point where he was, but uh, within a matter of months, getting billions of views. Now, the issue was is that some of the content was ostensibly harmless. It was about him, here's my Bugatti car, here's my nice house. But he was also extraordinarily misogynist in some senses, violently misogynist, talking about the ownership of women. And, just, uh, and it was this really, really toxic rhetoric that young men were imbibing in the, uh, well, not just in the UK, it became a global issue, where young men were watching this guy that they started to look up to saying, this is how you should treat women. And it was, you know, basically women should be in the kitchen, women should be owned by men. 
really, really nasty stuff. But there was also a racism in there, especially towards Islam. And there was also a homophobia in there as well. And we don't take deplatforming lightly at Hope Not Hate. We understand that lots of people don't like it as a tactic. And, and we certainly understand that social media is, is a place where there can be disagreement. And it's, it's not about getting rid of people we disagree with. But we were really concerned that the scale that he had, he had become the amount of young men, especially that were consuming this really toxic, misogynistic, violent, misogynistic content, was we decided to try and launch a campaign against it. And so we, first of all, contacted all the social media companies with a big research dossier we produced, basically explaining why we felt that he was breaking their terms of service, especially to around misogyny, but also around homophobia and racism and uh, and all sorts of policies that we felt he was breaking. And basically said, we feel like you should deplatform him and, and we're going to launch a campaign in the coming days, calling for this publicly if you don't. Some of them moved very quickly, some of them moved very slowly, but they all did eventually move. And and, and it was exciting in the sense that TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, all Instagram, all removed his accounts in a, in a week or so. So it was a great campaign. And that wasn't just us, of course. There was especially women's groups, uh, kind of rape support groups, people from all over the world kind of spoke up about this issue and, and put pressure on the tech platforms and they eventually moved. It doesn't mean that he's not still a problem. I mean, some of the platforms have deleted him completely, but other ones just deleted his accounts. And, and part of his modus operandi was getting his supporters to put his content on the platform. And so a lot of that content is still found on there, although there is significantly less than there was a few months ago. So it's been really successful. Now, of course, he's done what many of these figures have done and, and moved into the alt tech space. He's moved on to a platform called Rumble. And then he's moved on to it, which is like a, a video platform and a platform called Getter, which is a bit like Twitter. But he is obviously reaching significantly fewer people. But it was a really telling example, I think, of of how someone can manipulate social media to really, really quickly grow and to spread this awful sort of really dangerous content around the internet really, really fast and have a huge impact. Um, it was a good example of, of what social media allows people to do these days. Uh, does this signal some kind of shift in how... Uh, the major social media corporations are responding to this kind of material. And what changes do you think you've seen over the course of the last 10 years or so? Well, I think the social media companies have, or the major platforms have all got much better in the last decade, you know, but that, that is after years of people like Hope Not Hate, but, but everyone in every country around the world that does this sort of work, banging their heads against a wall for year after year after year, trying to get them to move and, and to improve their policies. And it was extraordinarily slow and and a huge amount of harm happened in that period and continues to happen. But the platforms have certainly progressed in terms of the policies are stronger. You know, there's much more moderation in place. So it's, well, there has been progress. We are, of course, a million miles away from where we need to be. And it's why in places like the UK, we're looking at the online safety bill. You know, in Germany, they brought in legislation called NetsDG, like about calling essentially and the European Union is looking about it as well realizing that the only way we're really going to force the hand of these platforms is through some sort of quite robust regulation. But they've moved a long way. The issue, of course, is that once you get outside America, the platforms care much less. Once you get out of the global north, the platforms care much less. And once you get into the global south, it often seems that they don't care at all. We saw what happened with the genocide against the Rohingya and stuff, where at the time, I think Facebook had no moderators at all that spoke uh, the languages in Burma. So there is a huge, huge way to go and a huge amount of harm is still going. But the thing that I think has improved time and time again that it works is public pressure, right? You either hit them with the purse, so you either hit their advertisers, uh, which has worked uh, various times, but often only sporadically, and public pressure. You know, you need to, you're exposing them when they get things wrong. 
uh, and making sure the newspapers and the television channels around the world, when they cover these things, that's how we see the platforms actually move on these issues. And I know, obviously, there's been a lot going on with this sort of stuff in Australia as well, of course, right, that, that we saw how the platforms were willing to fight back. But public pressure seems to be the only thing that's managed to get them to move over the years. And they've come a long way, but there's an awful long way to go. The issue we now face is not just the major platforms. There is now a, a kind of functioning alt tech space, which, you know, the far right have always been early adopters of the internet. You can go back to pre the World Wide Web where they had message boards, you know, Stormfront and things that, that, that existed. They were always understanding that the internet offered them opportunities that the mainstream gatekeepers wouldn't allow them. Uh, and now, of course, realizing that they were being deplatformed and they don't control the platforms, there is this whole ecosystem of platforms out there which are finally actually have the functionality where they actually work, which which wasn't the case for many years. And while they're much smaller, there is now a kind of a space of platforms. BitChute makes video, you know, BitChute, Rumble, Getter, Gab. And while they're much smaller, they do exist. And of course, these are platforms over which we'll have no control and we'll have no ability to lobby because in many cases, they're set up by the far right themselves. And so we have now this new challenge of how do we deal with an online space whereby many of the tactics that we've all been using for the last decade to try and you know, reduce harm, especially deplatforming, is not going to have an effect. We're not going to be able to get Tommy Robinson off Getter when he's got hundreds of thousands of followers because they want him on Getter. They're actively flying out to court him uh, to try and encourage him to join. So there is a new challenge emerging, which is this uh, these toxic spaces with low moderation that over which we'll have very little control. And I think this is why uh, kind of policies... And, and legislation is going to be so important because it's going to be the leg- if the legislation is done correctly, it can have an impact on those platforms as well. Uh, just finally, Joe, in the book, you take a look at climate change and how the far right might react to it. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you found and perhaps some of the relationships between the far right and, I guess, the extractive industries that it contribute to climate change? How do they profit from it? Yeah, I, I think this is the major issue for, for the anti-fascist movement. We need to get much, much better at it. We need to get more on top of it. We need to be talking about it way, way more because I think it's the, I mean, obviously climate change is going to affect absolutely everything, but I don't think we're necessarily spending enough time thinking how it's going to affect the far right and how it's going to affect all sorts of things that are in our lane. I mean, traditionally, of course, the far right have uh, blocked climate change uh, progress. You know, they've obviously been at the forefront of denying climate change and people like Trump in America, but all over the world, the far right have often been the ones at the forefront of pushing denial the, the, you know, and at the more moderate end, the radical right, we've seen them, as you say, getting funding from things like the Koch brothers and, you know, extractive industries, funding lobbying bodies that are pushing denial or if not denial, certainly trying to slow down progress around things like legislation. That's one major issue, right? And we've seen that time and we've seen that all over Europe, of course, for a long time. But I think we're moving into a new phase now, which is in some senses even more scary, right? Which is where the far right are beginning to co-opt the issue of climate change. They're beginning to say, yeah, absolutely, climate change is real. And the way we deal with that is by hoarding our own resources, about closing our borders, about stopping immigration, because these people are going to take our resources, which are already limited, and are going to get more limited. And they're going to use climate change as a, as a way to legitimize increasingly xenophobic, you know, militarizing borders and all those sorts of things we've already seen uh, much, much more. And, and as we look at climate change, getting worse over the next 50 years. You know, I spent some time in Morocco with with uh, migrants that were moving north, you know, from from West Africa, which has been in drought for like a decade. When these populaces get uh, move because, the, you know, areas of the globe become inhabitable, you know, they're going to move north, right? They're gonna, in, in the case of Africa, they're going to move to Europe. In South, Af- South America, they're going to move, um, 
they're going to move into America. We're going to see parts of the subcontinent are going to be on the move with places like Bangladesh with the flooding. And and we haven't come to terms with how we, we're going to deal with this. I mean, I've spoken to migration charities which say, please don't mention millions of people are going to be on the move because we know how the far right will react to that and how much traction they'll get with that. On the flip side, we see the kind of uh, climate change sector saying we need to you know, ring the alarm bell for millions of people are going to be forced out of their homes. We don't even have the language about how these two movements are going to speak together. And I think that's really, really concerning. We saw in, the, in Europe, for example, during the 2014 to 17 so-called migrant crisis, how the far right whipped up tensions, how we saw the impact that had on, say, the AFD's rise in Germany. We're talking that's a drop in the ocean in terms of the millions of people that are going to uh, need to come to Europe in, in, the, in the coming decades as huge chunks of Africa and, and Asia become inhabitable and, and you know, just are not functional to live there. Um, the far right are going to be in the best position to, to rally their troops, to turn around and say, we need to stop this, we need to close our borders, we need to hoard our own resources. And we've already seen that in places like France, where Le Pen uh, is no longer necessarily denying climate change, but is actually talking about the need to expand out our understanding of ecology to include culture and you know these things that need to be productive. And a lot of this is nothing new, of course, right? Blood and soil is, is a long-standing trope within the far right. But I think climate change is going to be an enormous challenge for the progressive movements all over the world that we need to kind of start grappling with much more already. And of course, you know, you guys are going to know just as well, we're seeing it in Australia. So I think it's a really worrying thing that we're not talking about enough. Perhaps that's too grim a point to end on. Uh, Joe, uh, hope, something that gives you hope shouldn't be too hard for you to conjure up. After all, you're from hope, not hate. Uh, what's something that uh, you're hopeful about? This is the bit I always forget to do at the end of when I give talk. <laughs> I get colleagues come up and say, you always forget the half of our name because uh, I'm, I'm always rubbish at that bit. There is hope, though, right? <clears throat> and, um, and the hope is that <clears throat> we only lose this. We only lose these battles if we don't fight them. Right? And by that, I mean, even in the places where the radical right is in power or the far right is in power, they usually almost also don't have a majority of society. They might win an election, but they don't have a majority of a society. And that means that if all of the people that don't necessarily agree with them come together and unite in some form, then we, then we win. We still are a majority almost everywhere when it comes to these issues and, and to these parties specifically. If we can form popular fronts where we come together collectively and we reject the politics of these people, then we win. The only way we lose is if we don't fight. The only way we lose is if, you know, when you look at Trump, right, when, he, when Trump, 70 million people voted for Trump the second when he lost his election, right? And that's after we'd put kids in cages. That's after he'd uh, banned Muslims from entering America, right? Now, that doesn't mean that 70 million people agreed with those policies, but it does mean 70 million people didn't care enough about those issues, about the racism, the misogyny, all of those issues to not vote for him. Right. But that means we can win those people. Right. If so. So the hopeful element, I think, here is, is that we remain in the majority and, and it's within our power to win these battles. If we can mobilize the people and we can come together and mobilize, then we win. And I think that's quite hopeful because it means it's not like this is a, a one way road. We can, you know, in many ways, the arc of history is bending towards justice, as they always say. Uh, but it's not a one way road. We can lose those gains as well. So it's about fighting continuously. And if we do, we win. And I think that's maybe quite hopeful. There we go. Not a completely depressing point to end on. That's much better. Well, Joe, thanks very much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you are at Joe Mulhall underscore. Uh, and people can, of course, find Hope Not Hate online. And the book is Drums in the Distance, Journeys into the Global Far Right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you then. 
like to rock, some people like to roll. Me, I like to sit around to satisfy my soul. I like my women short, I like my women tall. And that's about the only thing I really dig at all, yep. Yeah. I belong to the beat generation. Why don't let anything boggle my mind? I belong to the beat generation. Everything's going just fine. Some people say I'm lazy. And my life's a wreck Hell, that stuff doesn't faze me I get unemployment checks I run around in shades Drugs and booze I crave And that's the way I wanna be When someone digs my grave Yep, I belong to the generation Why don't let anything boggle my mind Why belong to knew a man who actually worked from nine to five just to pay his monthly bills is why he stayed alive so keep your country cottage your house and lawn so green i just want a one-room pad where i can make the scene yep i belong to Just ducky. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.